like to welcome James Holt from Perpetual to the show. We uh, both caught your um, ASA webinar, uh, I think it was back in March, and we thought you did a very fine job. Uh, and I've just come from the ASA uh, annual conference, day one of that actually today. It was uh, interesting. But uh, tell us, before we get into nitty-gritty questions about your approach to investing, James, tell us a little bit about yourself from where do you hail and how did you end up in investing in perpetual yeah look i i grew up in a small town uh, in new south wales called kudamundra and uh look i i was always interested in uh you know markets politics history all those sort of things but i thought i thought markets were a great you know expression of uh where the world was at any point in time obviously attracted to the whole, you know, um, craziness as well. It was always popping up in the headlines, markets booming, markets crashing as well. Um, but, of course, I think, um, and then I went to university and studied economics. I went to the ANU, uh, which is a great university for that for that purpose. And uh, and then after that, I made my way to Sydney and, and started working for BT Funds Management. So I didn't know, I knew about markets. I didn't know exactly what was the right entry point. And so uh, stockbroking obviously was in its heyday when I was, when I was growing up. Uh, but funds management had sort of come into its own by the 1990s when I, I sort of joined the industry. And uh, that was just a natural place for, for me to go. And then you learn a lot on the way, you know. So um, <clears throat> the theory sometimes equals reality. Sometimes a theory is completely different to reality, you know. And then also you get, I think when you're young, you get caught up in the moment. You you sort of think whatever is going on at the time is normal. And then you soon learn over time that, uh, that in fact, um, you know, the late 1990s is not normal, uh, the dot-com era. And uh, post-2000, you know, more normal returns is the true normal. And then uh, we're going to get carried away with, uh, with, uh, with the mining boom in 2007, 2008. And that, that came down to worth it, obviously, with the GFC. And then we, you know, we're now, you know, 10, 12 years on, moved into a new phase altogether. So uh, there's always something to learn. There's always something you don't know. And, uh, and, uh, and it's always exciting. So I think that's what keeps people interested. No, no regrets about uh, your, your career decision? No, not at all. Not at all. You know, uh, I mean, sometimes... Um, you know, I think financial services gets treated a little bit cynically, uh, but most of the time, I think, and everyone in the industry I've come across is 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 trying to do the right thing. You know, they're they're they've all found their niche, they've all found their way to, I think, uh, contribute. Um, nobody has a crystal ball and knows what's coming uh, next, but um, but I think the key thing is over time, and it's one of the you know one of those great. Uh, industries where the longer you're in financial services, the more knowledge you have, the better you get at it. Uh, same with managing money or, or whatever else. So, I think uh, it's um, there is great, you know, cumulative knowledge uh, to be gained, um, and uh, hopefully, ideally, put that to the to the best use of our clients. Yeah. If you hadn't got into investing, what would you have done? You're a very good-looking man, if you don't mind my saying so. You could have been a, a male model, an actor. Uh, you look a little bit like yeah. Don Draper there. Uh, yeah, no, never thought. Maybe, no, I, maybe no. I. No, no, uh, okay. no. no. I, I didn't. I didn't have a thought in that direction. I must say, but but look, I did. I, you know, if I wasn't, maybe I'd be. I don't know. I could be teaching. I could be university education, uh, something like that. Um, uh, you know, politics has been mentioned from time to time. You know? mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, who knows? Who knows? But, uh... <laughs> and tell us, tell us a bit about Perpetual for people who aren't very familiar with Perpetual. What's their story? Yeah, look, Perpetual is um, is uh, look, it's a it's a company that's been around a long time. 
it, it was first known as Perpetual Trustees and it was formed in 1885, 1886, uh, uh, when effectively, if you think about the first 100 years after the first fleet arrived, a lot of people had accumulated a lot of wealth in Australia and they wanted to spend time going back to the mother country, heading back to, to London. Uh, and, you know, as you accumulate wealth, you want a sort of protection for it as well. You want trustee status. So Perpetual Trustees was formed to um, act as a trustee when people were away or couldn't look after their property in whatever way, shape or form, <clears throat> which in more recent years and decades has meant... Um, you know, looking after, you know, someone who gets a, an, an injury payout or who becomes very wealthy and needs to uh, have that wealth, um, you know, uh, looked after by by um, by someone else. So that's what, that's what the perpetual trustee background is. It does mean that we are a very conservative firm. And so one of the, our first investment vehicle, which goes right back to the, to the 60s, is called the Widows and Orphans Fund. So if you're like ingrained in the thinking is these are people who don't have any capital they can afford to lose. They've earned all their money. They've had a payout. They won't be earning any more money from their endeavours. They're retired, whatever. Um, so we've got to make the capital last. And so that that that's deeply, I can't stress that enough, deeply embedded in the DNA, which comes, I think, with a trustee company naturally anyway. And that, that informs all of our thinking around how we try and stretch the capital for as long as possible. Right. So just after, I read about Ned, the time of Ned Kelly's hanging, I guess, you were found... <laughs> That's it. That's it. Around around that, roughly around that time, exactly. Interestingly, the, there's some great stories from from the period of setting up. So, number one was uh, amongst the people involved in the setting up was a, a Sydney barrister called Edmund Barton, who uh, later went on to become our first prime minister. And when they were trying to decide who would be the chairman of Perpetual, uh, uh, they decided to weigh them, <laughs> and the heaviest director became. Uh, trustee, it was just the thing they did at the time. But again, <laughs> not the, you know, uh, so uh, that was one of the one of the one of the Fairfaxes became the first chairman. So it's um, wow. it's got a lot of history. In fact, and in fact, in our offices, um, you you do uh, you can see a lot of uh, you know in perspects uh, books, ancient you know old books and ledgers and in weighing instruments and those sort of things that mm. um, uh, that, are, that are all around the building. I think it's great to to sort of live your history a bit and, and know where you've come from and, uh, you know, the original purpose of what you're trying to do for people. I think the Packers use the same sort of thing to determine who's the CEO of their business. Tony, do you, yes. <laughs> do you, do you want to ask more intelligent questions that I'm capable of? Yes, yeah, so you're still choosing CEOs, CEOs by weight because I'll, uh, I'll apply. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's uh, the the criteria has changed over time. <laughs> oh, that's a bugger. So, <laughs> so, so basically, now you run managed funds. Is that the case, as well as your other um, trustee yeah. business? Yeah, we we still have the trustee business. We also have um, perpetual private, which is a private advice business as well, uh, and um, they're sort of separated. So, corporate trustee and private advice, and then we also have the uh, the perpetual investments, which is now known as um, because we've actually acquired. Two businesses in recent times, so we've got the the long the longevity is in the Australian business of Australian equities perpetual business, which what we're most famous for, uh, has been around for many many decades. Um, and then we've also got what's uh, another firm we've acquired called Barrow Hanley, which is in the US, um, and also Trillium Asset Management, which is an ESG manager based in uh, based on the east coast of America. So they all form part of Perpetual International. 
So if I wanted to invest in in a fund, what do I do? Are they listed? Are they ETFs? How, how does it work? Yeah, we, look, they're all mostly unlisted. We do have uh, most of our fund. We have, have come from an unlisted background, so most of our funds are managed funds, uh, which you apply for in the usual way. You fill out an application form or go through a platform or one of those sort of things. We do have two listed vehicles. So we have the Perpetual Equity Investment Company, which trades under the ASX code of ticker of, of PRC. The ticker is PRC. And then we have a, a credit fund, a bond fund, which trading with the ticker of PCI. So PIC for equities, PCI for, for uh, credit. And the headstock, so we are actual, our actual business is listed as well. That trades under the ticker of PPT. Uh, that houses, that owns all of the, the, the businesses I, I talked about earlier. Uh, and we're looking to launch ETFs um, at some point as well later this year is the, is the plan with the now set to the market. What's the better investment, PPT or one of the funds? <laughs> it's uh, this is one of the great questions, isn't it? You know, do you buy, do you buy, do you put your money in the banks or do you buy the banks? You know, mm. uh, and uh, look, I, look, I think um, you know, of course, everything in sales is a general nature only, but uh, but I think <laughs> I think the business has really, um, I think we had you know about 30, 40 billion domestic assets plus with um, the. Trillium acquisition and Barrow Hanley, our assets under management are sort of approaching around $95 billion uh, Australian. And I think given also that, and look, our performance uh, from 2015 to 2020 was was struggling uh, a bit, it's fair to say, because we are sort of conservative Warren Buffett-style value investors. Um, and, of course, that wasn't in vogue for most of the last five years. You know, 2016, 17, 18, 19, uh, and even 2020 were very much about the tech companies, um, you know, the more leverage, the better, um, you know, those sort of things. So that's not our game. <clears throat> and our funds were, were, were left behind, it's fair to say, producing reasonable absolute returns but not keeping up with the market. Um, but that's changed. The real, the real factor that's changed that has been, I think, in the wake of COVID, we've seen uh, the... Uh, you know that the, the gaining of vaccines, uh, the the vaccines coming, the the prospect of reopening has reignited the business cycle, and of course, um, you know as you probably know, the business cycle is quite favourable to value companies. So if you think about a lot of them, energy miners, banks, those sort of things, they've all started to rally quite hard, and that's that's much more favourable to our style. So we tend to there's no exact rhyme or reason as to when value and growth should should perform, but they do they do sort of take turns to perform through the cycle and usually the early phase of the business cycle which appears to be what we're going through now um, is when value has um, has sprung back to life so that's um, that's caused all the funds pretty much across the board to do better and I think it means that you know uh, we, you know we've had outflows the last few years I think generally we've seen historically they start to diminish some inflows come back in again so that might be supportive of the, of the headstock uh, at some point as well I have noticed a few value stocks have actually, Appear to be in a in a bottoming and turnaround phase. So, uh, especially if we see this continuation of value rotation, which um, is certainly getting more and more sort of publicity. It's interesting. I mean, I take on board your comments about where we are in the cycle, but but um, also too, there are people out there saying that where you know, the stock market's overvalued, particularly in the states, and we could be heading for a bubble or in a bubble, and we could be heading for a crash, and inflation could drive that. What are your views on all that kind of doom saying that's out there in the market at the moment? Yeah, look, it's it's. I think it's very worthwhile listening to, but also we have to, I think, think about it and pull apart what that means. So effectively, um, you know, we are uh, seeing, uh, the more you see the recovery, the, te- the more you will tend to see, as the market believes in the recovery, 
the more you'll tend to see interest rates start to rise. We've had a taste of that. If you think about the 10-year bond yield, and this is also something that people forget, is that if they hear that the official central banks, the official rates are on hold, so the Reserve Bank's not going to raise rates soon or the Fed's not going to raise rates soon, it doesn't mean that interest rates don't go up because the market can drive interest rates as well. So the 10-year in Australia and, and the US both went from you know, 0.7%, 0.8% to putting on about a full percent from November last year through to about March or April this year. So interest rates did move up quite substantially, and that really put, uh, really cut a few of those high-flying tech stocks. And the basic theory is that the more the interest rates rise, um, the more discount you have to apply to future profits. And those growthier companies with far more of their earnings in the future get those earnings discounted at a much more heavy rate. And the result of that is that the, the growth stocks, the ratio higher PE stocks should come down the most in theory. But in practice, that tends to happen as well. The big debate is, um, <clears throat> has there been too much stimulus? Um, has now that the 10-year the bond yield has rallied to 1.7 but appears to be uh, moving sideways, is there room for another lift up in the 10-year bond yield to say 2, 2.5 or even 3%? Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people I, I talk and respect to are of the view that we are probably moving towards that higher, uh, we're, we're bottom-up stock pickers in the main. We do also have a few top-down uh, people as well on the macro side of the business. But, there's, there's a feeling that, that rates probably should be higher. Uh, maybe the central banks will try and intervene and, and, and affect those as well. But I think in time, you probably will see those move a bit higher and that probably does not bode well for those parts of the market. So in answer to your question, the US stock market is way over the top, it would appear. Um, there, there's a, even if you, you know, I know Warren Buffett used to be very, you know, like a, a measure of market cap to GDP. And, you know, that average is about 100% of GDP. The stock market should be about the same size as the economy. And we, we once considered the US market out of control in 2000 when it got to 149% of GDP. But currently it's about 200% of GDP. So it's been below, it's been as low as 50, 70, 80%. But on 200% of GDP, it appears to be way over the top. But driven very much by that, that uh, those mega tech companies, which are, have pushed up to a high degree, and if bond rates do rally from here, they're the ones that are the most vulnerable to a downturn. And just like twenty years ago, those growthier stocks are very, very expensive. In Australia, by comparison, we don't have much of a tech weight. We, you know, tech is not the number one sector like it is in the US. It's a small sector. It's only about three percent or thereabouts of the market. Um, albeit we do have those big sort of techie names after pay and whatever that do get attention, but the tech sector itself is quite small. Um, and also um, the market cap to GDP, again, just, just for using that as a, an approximate measure, is sitting at about 115, 117%. We've been a lot higher. We've been as much as 150% in 2007. So I don't think our market's out of kilter with reality. Maybe some stocks are, but I think the overall market is. And we've only just got back to where we were uh, 14 years ago, whereas the US market is multiples of what, where it was uh, 12, 15 years ago. So I think for that reason, definitely from, a, from an overall perspective, the US market probably at some point needs to move down. Um, but I can see room for us a bit like after 2000, not going anywhere or moving sideways or even potentially still moving up if there is enough of a rally behind banks and resources to, to keep it going, because that's where the weight of money uh, is in our in our particular stock market. That's a very good analysis. So I'm guessing that uh, you're 100% invested, 
And I'm thinking your strategy is to always be 100% invested. Is that correct? Yeah, we can. Um, we do like to cash up across our funds. So um, we can be, uh, I mean, for the moment the perpetual equity investment company, the PIC, uh, for example, is about is about 98% invested. Um, it, um, you know, it, uh, so uh, and most funds are, are about that level. And I'd say we do see upside still to a lot of the themes, if you like, the, the sort of value-ish themes that are in the funds. So yeah, there's, there's still a big reopening trade to be had. You know, the Qantas's and so forth still got more upside once reopening finally happens. Um, <clears throat> there's one example. The banks have moved, but we notice that insurance companies haven't. So the big insurers, IAG, Suncorp, those sort of stocks, we think there's much more upside because they've sort of more or less gone sideways. Um, and uh, so those sort of there's, there's still lots of value pockets in the market that haven't moved yet. Um, and there's, there's, uh, there's also a base metals, I think, is another interesting place for us where we've started to see some appreciation. Um, and then also the builders as well. So things like a bowl and, and those sort of companies um, are still, you know, got, got a lot of work in the pipeline, which is going to be worked through and, uh, and go from there. So there's still, uh, I think, so there's two elements in the market. There's still the growth sectors that are still expensive and probably have room to come down. And I think there's still some value sectors that have room to go up. So if you're a value investor right now, you're probably seeing plenty of opportunities to be reasonably fully invested into, into the recovery. Yeah, we are actually. Our, our, uh, our top scorers list is as long as it's ever been, I think, probably even longer yeah. Yeah, at right. the moment. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about, given that, tell me about portfolio construction. Do you limit the number of shares or the position size you take in your funds? Yeah, we do. We, we sort of, there's a, two, there's a two-pronged process to what we do. So the first thing is, um, we like to own, uh, we like to put all stocks through a quality filter, if you will. So if we're looking at the market, the, the, the sort of ASX 300 plus other participants, you might be looking at about 450 companies in total, which we screen. And then we, we screen them for four factors, uh, conservative debt, uh, management, recurring earnings, and also industry structure. So we don't want to have uh, debt more than 50% of GDP or an interest, the, the particular measure we use is we don't want to have the interest bill soaking up more than a third of pre-tax earnings, uh, earnings before interest and tax. So essentially the thinking behind that is you don't want a company which has debt stress potential. Um, you know, so if you've got a company which might be paying 40% of its EBIT in interest and interest rates rise, it could be toast. They're the ones that tend to go under during a, during a, um, you know, the credit squeeze and things like that. So we screen out the high debt companies. Um, we also want to make sure the management do the right thing at the right time by shareholders. Uh, so the management filter is there. The uh, recurring earnings filter is to ensure that we think the company has a clear, visible earnings pipeline to come through. Again, we don't buy, we don't do startups or venture capital or things like that. Again, um, when credit is plentiful, those all those concept companies get plenty of funding. Uh, but when credit gets tight, or well, you know whatever happens, or or the credit you know bond credit markets blow up, um, those companies just can't borrow anymore to survive. And if they don't have their internal cash, then they uh, they tend to go by the wayside as well. And then lastly, industry structure, because although we're value oriented, um, you you don't want to own the best buggy with manufacturer, <laughs> you know, when the when the cars. Um, so you want to be out of declining industries. You want to be in good industries. You want to have going the right companies with good uh, positions in the right industries. 
And as a result of that, you want to have that industry filter as well to make sure that it's um, well-placed. So those sort of quality filters, they, they knock out about 170 companies. And we focus then on the remaining 280 companies, which we then rank from one to five. So one and two being the best value, four and five being the least best value. And we've got an analyst team of 10 people who do that all the time. So they're looking at about 20, 30 companies each ranking them according to the best value. And then we fill our portfolios with those companies that represent the best value. And, it, you know, sometimes we can add up to 40, 50 stocks in companies, in funds like the uh, listed companies, like the, the PIC will own more like, uh, you know, more like 20 companies, you know, 15, 25 or thereabouts, um, mostly Australian, but up to 35% uh, overseas as well uh, to give a bit of a diversification. Companies that, that we can't get ownership in a, in a particular way here, um, but it gives us a good balance of, of companies, high quality um, at a reasonable price um, is sort of the, the, the way we think is the best way to, to structure that quality value, so to speak, that we're looking for. We do the same sort of thing here. So uh, are you able to share some of the top holdings and just see if they overlap with ours? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at the moment, um, we're looking at things like, um, uh, you know, uh, big stocks for us have been, uh, you know, Crown, Crown Resorts is probably the number one at the moment. So, uh, we've we've held that. If you think about it as a as a, as a quality business, you won't find uh, a, 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 you know a, a better quality business in the entire uh, world at the moment. I'd say is uh, is is one example. Um, and look, we've we've assessed that on being whether it keeps its license or not. It's a business which um, is was always going to be uh, have a, a base of property value underlying it. So the property kind of underwrote the stock, so to speak. Um, the net tangible asset has been higher than the share price for some time. As an ongoing concern, it's it's better. And, of course, it's also in high demand for other suitors as well, hence the bidding war for, for crowd assets. So where that winds up, we're not too sure, but um, we've been quite vocal that, uh, you know, clearly uh, it's got to be, uh, there's got to be, Crown's got to work to try and get the best value for its for its clients. If I can be cheeky, I'm, I'm guessing it got through your management screen, but not the uh, Bergen Inquiry management screen. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's a good question because in this case we, um, you know, this is something we we a challenge we face from time to time where you've got uh, I'd say it's remind it's a very very different scenario, but it's similar to kind of Woolworths a few years ago where Woolworths was a fantastic franchise, it was great business. Um, but it had fallen on hard times and management needed to change. But what we we're buying into, if you like, was the coming change in management. So we knew the chairman, uh, Gordon Cairns, who took over Woolworths in 2015 or thereabouts, that he was going to renew the entire management uh, of, of the business. Uh, he was going to change the way everything worked. Um, and the result of that was, remember, at the point, the funny thing was that Woolies was trading as high as only 40 bucks in 2013-14. Then it halved in 2015 down to $20. And often... The deterioration is happening at the top, but investors don't necessarily know, but the repair work is happening towards the bottom, um, and investors often don't know that either. So in this case, you're seeing the stock fall. Uh, in Woolworth's case, um, you're buying into the change management that's going to actually be a benefit. So Gordon Hands came in, Brad Banducci came in as the CEO, uh, and we thought the assets were worth, you know, Woolies was worth under a breakup scenario at least $30, $32 a share. But it was trading about $20. So that was effectively what we saw. And I'd say the same thing with Crown now, where um, clearly the company had issues. It has world-class assets, fantastic businesses, 
we knew things had to change. The Bergen Inquiry probably provided a catalyst for that change, uh, which is now being um, uh, brought through. And, of course, I think you've seen the stock respond to the fact that the assets are fantastic. Um, the, the inquiries kind of provided a, a, an ability to, um, uh, to bring about the change required and the, and, the, and the rest is history, you know. So I think uh, that's been a, a good result all around. Um, and also things, so Crown, Blue Scope uh, Steel is another mm-hmm. significant position. So that's where, again, we've got, um, uh, you know, a, a very high-quality business in North America. North Star is the lowest, one of the lowest cost operators in, in, in North America. And, look, there's a lot of change going on. I think we've seen the Europeans already pass a uh, carbon border adjustment tax, carbon border adjustment tax, which may cause steel from emerging markets to rise considerably, clearly targeted at a particularly large emerging market. Maybe that um, puts Blue Scope in a much better position. So it's benefiting from the cyclical recovery, but there could be some structural uh, benefits behind it as well. And look, another a couple of the big stocks we own are actually offshore. So in uh, La Francais de Jure, uh, which is a French lottery that people probably haven't heard of, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a great business. And look, we have strong knowledge of you know, what TAPS has done over the past years, a great lottery business here, which has um, been gradually shifting online. So less news agent sales and more digital sales. And we're seeing the same thing in La Francais, but it listed, it used to be a French government monopoly. It's still got the monopoly license, but it's listed on the on the market. And um, it's gradually shifting from, you know, its digital sales are gone from 5%, but will, will increase to 10, 15, 20% in the future. Every time that happens, its margins double effectively. So, it's wonderful when you can see these sort of these sort of stories, these great businesses that are undervalued, but you can see a pathway, just like we've seen here in Australia, for these businesses to change and to get uh, you know better returns from it. Um, and uh, it's uh, it can be a great opportunity for our, for our clients to be there. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, well, Cam, I think I'm out of my questions. If you've got any more, just to wrap up, James. So I'm I'm relatively new to investing, and I, I'm. I'm really fascinated to know how in perpetual, let's say go back pre-COVID, um, late 2019, early 2020, when uh, tech stocks uh, going through the roof here in Australia, everyone's excited. And even, you know, post-COVID when their afterpay was, you know, hitting record highs for its stock. What kind of pressures do you face as an organisation to change your investing style and open yourselves up to these things? And, and how do you handle it with the culture internally? How do you uh, stay focused, ignore the noise and stick to your knitting? Because I think for a lot of investors and a lot of our listeners um, probably value investing as something that they're getting their head around and the whys and the wherefores. And Tony has his approach and they know that he has balls of steel and uh, and ice ice running through his veins. So he just goes, oh, I don't care. I just do what I do and everyone else can do their thing. That's fine. I just do this because it works. It's always worked. It keeps working. I don't worry about it. But how do you guys handle it? How, how, how do you get up every day or go to a barbecue on the weekend and people go, oh, oh James, you're not in afterpay. You, you guys suck. What do you, how, how do you process that? Yeah, look, it's it's really really hard because um, you know the team here. Uh, you know, um, I think uh, you can see it sometimes in their faces and the way they 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 uh, they they get about work each day. But it's not easy, and I must say, every single cycle, 
it's the same feeling. And I've, I've actually seen it blow up other organisations, you know. So, uh, and the pressure, I know we talk here at, at Perpetual about um, the pressure to, you know, buy News Corp in 2000 because it's such a big part of the benchmark was was overwhelming, you know, but but over, overwhelmingly the fund managers resisted that and didn't want to go down that path. Um, we faced a lot of pressure to buy CSL, you know, we bought as little as possible or in some cases not at all, depending on what the what the metrics of the, of the particular portfolio was that clients had. So um, there's always a, a stock that kind of represents the peak of the market, if you like, um, and uh, you just want to avoid those at all costs. But look, you have to wear. You have to. I, I think. I think EQ and investing can be as important as IQ, um, <clears throat> and sticking to your guns, and resisting the urge to to go with the flow and to cave in, if you like. The worst thing, the thing that investors most dislike, is when what you say on the tin is different to what you actually deliver. And um, and you've. Uh, and I must say. This now, when you think about it, three, four cycles in a row, the dot com boom and bust, the the the, the GSC boom and bust, um, and uh, when you know back then in two thousand and seven, people forget there was the Babcock and Brown, there were the mining companies, there was so much stuff you could have bought, so much junk that didn't fit through our quality filters was going well. So it's tough, but um, but uh, I think three of the last cycles over the past 30 years now perpetual has stuck to its guns and also the rather remarkable thing with perpetual i think is that we've had the changing of the guard so many times so you think about all the stars have come through perpetual uh peter morgan anton tagliaferro uh you know matt williams john sevi or um the, the the team has managed to evolve it's a unique culture it's a supportive culture but a competitive one as well um, and it's seen its way through three cycles, which uh, which not many asset managers can say they've done. But it's 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 super tough. But <laughs> you just got to tough it out. So you're not going to go and set up a crypto fund anytime soon. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, give us your thoughts quickly on crypto, because obviously. You know, I see a lot of friends on Facebook. They're going, they're they're doubling down on Bitcoin because it's going to come roaring back. Somebody posted the other day, it's it's going to hit a million dollars, Bitcoin, a coin, yeah, and I yeah. just I just laughed. Yeah. I know it's there's so many ways you can tackle Bitcoin, um, uh, and and I think um, you know I, I I think the way I like to think about it is that. Whenever you see, you know, what's that wonderful saying by Mark Twain? He never actually said it, but people attribute it to him. Uh, history, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes a lot. And every ten to twenty years, we see the same sort of rhyme come through. So we think this, we think Bitcoin's unique, but it shares a lot of characteristics with the dot-com bubble twenty years ago, and the dot-com bubble has a lot of characteristics with the Nifty Fifty bubble of the nineteen seventies, and it has shares characteristics with you know stocks decades before. And you go back a hundred years, Radio Corporation of America was the hot Tesla of the day, you know, that rose and then collapsed by ninety percent, and then you go back four hundred years and you find the South Sea bubble. Uh, and so forth. And even in between these periods, I was reading the other day about the bike bubble of the 1890s. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if you've heard of that one, but no. there, was a, there was a bike bubble. So basically, bicycles became the latest hot technology in the, in London, in the UK, in the 1890s. And suddenly, um, bicycle companies popped up everywhere. There, was, there were hundreds that listed on the UK Stock Exchange. 
and suddenly you wouldn't believe this there was an oversupply of bicycles (laughs) (laughs) and 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 have a guess have a guess what happened next the bicycle bubble collapsed and and two-thirds of all bicycle companies then went out of business in the mid to late 1890s so there was even a bike bubble tulip mania you know so i think as humans part of our thing is we're imaginative we're optimistic about the future but i think that does manifest every 10 20 years in a bubble of this nature and we our imagination runs wild and we take it up to a high level but if you look at what happens whenever there's a new technology um a ton of capital goes into it. And, and you know, even back again 100 years ago, 120 years ago, I think there were about 100 car companies that formed in the, U- in the US. Um, of course, only, only several survived. So there are 100 car f- companies formed, 95 disappear or get merged, five survive. And I think Bitcoin, the tech bubble was the same thing. You know, there's a handful of survivors, but a lot of people, a lot of lot were, were called, but few survived. Um, and I think the, the crypto thing could be the same. So usually what happens is as a bubble, too much capital goes in, people lose a lot of money, but something is left behind. Something is left behind which has some value. The railway mania, the same thing. You think about the US and the UK railway mania, mm. a lot of capital went in. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. A lot of money went in, but not, not necessarily a lot of money came out. But, if, but assets were built that survived and thrived. And I, and I think the thing with Bitcoin is maybe things like the blockchain, is, um, is a very valuable piece of technology. Maybe we will have a few cryptocurrencies that survive, but I don't think they will all survive. And now that there's not hundreds but thousands of them out there, there's no, given that there's no cap on currencies, um, I, I struggle with the whole argument around scarcity um, uh, because there's no scarcity in down to create one. We could create one right here on this, on this podcast, right? Um, so I think that's a problem. But so I think eventually there'll be this, um, I think eventually there'll be a reckoning and a lot of money will disappear. But some interesting things will survive, come out of it. Maybe maybe a couple of currencies will survive. Maybe blockchain will become, uh, you know, the, the, the most easily used uh, uh, vehicle to keep keep a ledger of, of things in the world. Um, and so that's that's kind of, I think, what will probably happen. There is also a risk the regulator just gets rid of it, right? Because, in fact, even today, the last 24 yep. hours, they've announced that they're going to start regulating it, um, and China doesn't want it in that, its economy at all. So um, I think there's, uh, you know, governments want to keep control of these things, their own currencies. They don't want to have um, a handful of, of people on the fringe controlling the, the global money supply. It doesn't, doesn't really make any sense for them. Yeah, yeah we, uh, we joke around a lot on this show about this time it's different and whilst you know there are obviously things that are different, what one thing that's never different is is human psychology and human behaviour, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, you know that that I think that has not changed at all, and it clearly affects things. And, and but also why things rhyme? They don't repeat exactly, but they rhyme. And it, the the whatever's in a bubble. It gets absolutely convincing. It absolutely remember the South Sea bubble, which made no. If you go back in time and look at it historically, a company trading with South America that that's at war with South America, that makes no sense, you know. But somehow they they created the impression they're going to make millions and millions out of out of the South Sea bubble through these trade deals, these trade arrangements, and the stock went through the roof. And Isaac Newton, as you're probably aware, put money in and made made some money out of the South Sea stock. But, of course, there's only one thing worse than taking a profit, and that's see your friends keep their money in South Sea stock, and they made far more money than you. And so as the bubble got to its zenith, 
Isaac Newton put all of his money back into the, the stock. And that was just before it peaked and crashed down to earth again. It fell about 90%, which seems to be the, 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 the thing that does repeat. And uh, he, lost, he lost all of his wealth. He lost 20,000 pounds. And, and Sir Isaac Newton said, I, you, he, apparently he couldn't mention it to him. He lost his temper every time it was mentioned to him. And he did write famously, I can calculate the movement of planets and stars, but I cannot calculate human madness, um, which <laughs> is, uh, it must have made a lasting impression on him to lose that amount of money, his entire net worth. <laughs> yeah, great story. Well, again, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to chat with us and share your thoughts, James. People want to check out more about Perpetual. What's the URL? Uh, we do have, yeah, just, if you just um, go to, uh, to Perpetual, I, I think the website is, would be, you know, if you just Google Perpetual, uh, asset management, you'll you'll certainly come up with the uh, with the uh, with the right place. Just Google it. Yeah, I like that. It's good. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, James. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. No worries at all. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, James. Bye. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on. How many questions we have from our audience that week because we spend a lot of that time answering questions uh, if you want to check out the premium episodes you can go up to our website qavpodcast.com.au and sign up for the two-week free trial you get to have a look at the premium episodes you get to have a look at the checklist the getting started guide all of the video content that we have uh, you get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. So, and also we get a, a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au. But as I said, if you're brand new and you want to, you're trying to figure out what's going on, Go back and listen to Season 3, Episodes 1, 3, and 5, 301, 303, and 305. And then you might also want to go back and listen to Season 1 as well, all of the free episodes in Season 1, where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you, if it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, with that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>